0: head to my website simonmundy.com or amazon waterstone smiths places like that to get your copy
1: there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and zepbound for those who qualify
0: This is Don't Tell Me The Score, the podcast that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions. My name is Simon Mundy, and each week I sit down with an expert from the biggest sporting names in the world to neuroscientists, psychologists, philosophers, and even former Buddhist monks. We discuss a theme that tells us something insightful about life and how best to live it, from the importance of self-acceptance to facing addiction and developing resilience, right through to getting your circadian rhythms in sync and how to sleep better. Sport is described as a metaphor for life, and this podcast aims to prove that right. Hello, and thank you for joining me. This is my full unedited episode with the philosopher and non-dual teacher, Rupert Spira. The first half of this episode's already been broadcast, but it is worth listening to in its entirety again. If you haven't listened to that first half yet, here is a quick recap. One theme that's arisen time and again on Don't Tell Me The Score is the experience of being in flow in sport. And one aspect of being in flow is a loss of self-consciousness or that sense of me that we all have. So what is that me that disappears? Well, that's a big question and one that Rupert is here to try and answer. Nothing is more obvious than the fact that we exist and that we are conscious or aware. And there is something called the hard problem of consciousness, and it's one of the great scientific conundrums. And it's our inability to explain how a lump of tissue or matter can produce consciousness. Now, scientists know there is a relationship between our brain and consciousness. For example, when we drink alcohol, our experience may change, although the simple fact of being aware never changes. And there is no evidence that our brain actually produces consciousness. So Rupert and lots of others like him argue that we have it the wrong way round. Our brains don't create consciousness. Rather, we are consciousness. This is a counterintuitive view. And before you dismiss it, don't forget the comments of one of the greatest physicists of the 20th century, the Nobel Prize winner, Max Planck. He said, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. Now, in this episode, we bring all this back to sports and the experience sports people have in flow. We also talk about ego and our propensity to project superhuman qualities onto people who are as normal in most respects as you and I. Now, we do go deeper in the second half. We talk about the hard problem of consciousness and as well cultivating an awareness of awareness, being aware of being aware. If you want to go straight to the second half, you could start at around the 40 minute mark. That's where we start exploring flow and its implications. Now, of course, I'd be delighted to hear what you make of this episode. Message me on social media at Simon Mundy and my website is simonmundy.com. But first, here is a philosophy of sport and reality with Rupert Spira. Rupert Spira, what a delight to have you here. How are you?
3: Very well. Pleasure to be with you, Simon. Thank you for inviting me.
0: My pleasure. This has been uh, two years in the making. I first approached you right at the start of uh, Don't Turn With a Score. So apologies it's taken so long.
3: Not at all. It's very nice to be here.
0: Now, before we get on to the serious stuff, quick question for you. Your hair looks very much in control. We're in the middle of lockdown. I've got the longest hair I've had since I was about 17. (laughs) How have you managed to sort of keep control?
3: Well, just a little bit of home trimming from time to time. (laughs) Don't be deceived. Don't don't, don't look too closely.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My other half insists she's never letting me have it cut short again. So it's been a bit of a revelation. (laughs) Anyway, that's that's not what we're here for, is it? We're here to talk about sports, about non-duality, about the nature of reality. And is it fair to say this is a bit different, a bit of a different conversation really for both you and I?
3: Yes, I'm not used to speaking to someone specifically about sports and um, Yes, I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone And and for that reason, very much looking forward to it
0: (laughs) So you're excited by being out of your comfort zone As opposed to in any way nervous about it
3: No, I'm not nervous about it On the contrary, I'm, I'm looking forward to it The people that I normally speak to tend to be within the parameters of non-dual philosophy, or people that are interested in spiritual matters—in other words, I'm accustomed to preaching to the choir. So you're coming from a from a field <laughs> that that is slightly out, outside of this. I'm sure you'll ask me questions, for instance, that I've never been asked before. Questions, perhaps, that I've never even considered before. Oh, and crossed. I I welcome the opportunity to um, take this uh, non-dual understanding into a a field that certainly I have yet to explore, and perhaps a field where it is not very prevalent.
0: Yet the experience of it perhaps is very prevalent.
3: Absolutely. The experience is common to everybody. I'm normally talking to people who have specifically focused their interest, have formulated their interest in these matters. Everybody experiences what we might refer to as the non-dual understanding. Everybody, all 7 billion of us, not everybody formulates that interest specifically as non-duality. But yes, everyone has experience of it. Absolutely, yes.
0: And I have to say I'm glad that I am speaking to you now at this stage of don't tell me the score, if you like, because I've, over the course of the last couple of years, had an opportunity to speak to people the best of the best, the real elites. I'm talking World Cup winners, all-time greats in various sports who've been able to explain and share moments where they have experienced really that which we're going to talk about in time. So I'm glad that actually that we are talking now rather than then because there are some concrete examples that we can pull up. Good. Right. So you mentioned philosophy. When you're filling out, I don't know, something to do with tax or something like that, how do you describe what you do? You're a teacher, you have lots of videos, people come to your workshops, but to the layman, how would, what would you describe your job as? I,
3: I always try to avoid having to put a label on myself because any label doesn't quite fit. So I tend to um, tailor the label to the circumstance. Not that I've traveled for a while, but if I'm traveling to the States, for instance, I'm going through immigration and they look at me suspiciously and ask me what I do, then I will say I lecture on philosophy or or I write about philosophy or something. But it's not. I would never normally call myself that. I would never normally call myself a, a teacher in the normal sense of a teacher as someone who has a a body of knowledge, uh, mathematics, history, politics, and and, and disseminates that knowledge to a class. It's not like that at all. I don't feel that I have a body of knowledge. I have an understanding, such as it is, and I love to share that understanding with anybody that's interested. Perhaps I would say that I I write and speak about um, the perennial understanding that underlies all the great religious and spiritual and philosophical traditions.
0: Well, we are talking really, and you talk about the nature of reality, and you mentioned it's the basis of all religions and etc. But actually, what you're talking about, it's not a religion. It's born of experience.
3: Yes, it's very much not a religion. Although I would suggest that it is the the essential understanding from which all the great religious, spiritual, and philosophical traditions arose. Of course, each tradition packaged this universal understanding in the local language and customs of the time, giving rise to a a wide variety of religions, spiritual traditions, etc. But if you take away the packaging, the local temporal form in which the understanding was packaged. You can distill all the great traditions into a a single, simple understanding. Of course, when I speak about this understanding, it is also couched in terms that are of my era, of my generation, of my culture. And in future generations, we'll speak about the same understanding in very different terms. But I do my very best to use terms that are drawn from our everyday life. No belief is required. It's an understanding that comes directly from an investigation of our experience. There is no subscription to or affiliation with any particular point of view or religion or tradition. No belief is required. In fact, on the contrary, we start, or one of the places we might start, it would be a a questioning of absolutely everything that we believe.
0: And we're going to do some of that. There will certainly, I imagine, be among my beloved listeners who at this point will be thinking, okay, we've mentioned religion, we've mentioned the root of all of these things, Some eyebrows, I'm fairly sure, will have gone up at this stage. But the reassuring part is that, that, as you said, we're not talking belief. We're not talking thought. We're talking an exploration of experience. So we'll just park that there, let that sink into people's uh, consciousness for the time being. And let's go back to a bit of the sport. So in the interest of full disclosure, when I have a bit of time to myself, which isn't a lot... Between listening to Peppa Pig, homeschooling, cleaning up, staring out of the window, trying to write my book, whatever it may be, I've got two default sort of short habits that I go to. They both involve uh, a well-known streaming service. And one involves watching old clips of tennis. I'm a tennis nerd of the very highest order. I remember every Wimbledon winner since sort of nineteen seventy two onwards it's one of my favorite games to play or showing off, if you like, so tennis on the one hand and the other is watching non dual videos, so I'm very excited to bring those together, but I do recall you have touched on sport occasionally. it's not the your your main area that you go into, and I just want to explore a little bit about your own interest in it. Am I right in saying I know your son is a football fan? I've heard you talk about him going to Wembley. Am I right in saying that you you support a football team and in particular Manchester United?
3: That's true. When I was young, I was a very keen football player and an ardent football supporter. Then, particularly when I became interested in these matters, I, I kind of neglected my interest in sports and all my energies and attention went into this exploration that we're talking about now. But then when my son Matthew was born, he became very interested in um, playing and watching football so the 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 closet soccer fan in me uh, was given a second lease of life and I really became interested again vicariously through Matthew and you know we lived in uh, Shropshire at the time so Shrewsbury was our local club so aged six I took him to his first match and and then he went from from Shrewsbury to uh, Stamford Bridge and Old Trafford and occasional games at Wembley and 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 so yes he, he is a great fan and I very much enjoy watching football but even more I enjoy watching tennis and playing tennis I don't claim to be anything like the uh, aficionado that you are but I do enjoy watching tennis and in fact if you know how um, YouTube suggests videos that you and and this betrays your history (laughs) and you, you would find quite a lot of tennis videos in particular videos of Federer and very often slow motion so um, yes I share that with you but the answer to your question is yes I I enjoy watching sport and uh, football and tennis particularly and and in particular playing tennis.
0: Well that's great to hear so I am as I said I'm a huge tennis fan it's weird I I was probably about seven or eight my mum took me to my local club and I still remember hitting the forehand and I just fell in love with it and thereafter, I used to get up every morning and I would check CFAX, which was the internet of its day, and check the results. And I'd get up to watch Transworld Sports to watch two minutes of tennis. That was what we'd have of a given week. And I'd get the Wimbledon highlights video. So now, absolutely spoilt for choice. But I've always wondered why. So I, I was brought up actually playing rugby. And, um, and I still go and watch rugby with my father or did do before the pandemic. But the difference is, I think, Tennis is the only sport that I don't need to watch live. So I can easily go back and watch old matches, particularly involving Federer and his balletic beauty. And for me, it's almost a meditative process. It's certainly how I relax. What is it about tennis, do you think, particularly related to your understanding, that perhaps? draws me in in that way? Because I know you're an artist, so I'm, I'm interested in the, in the parallels that you perhaps see with Federer and, and what I consider to be the art that he creates and the art that you have grown up loving.
3: I would suggest that the human mind is a, a relatively narrow segment of a much larger intelligence and that that intelligence is, is both the essence of the human mind and informs the human mind. So when, when the mind is performing, we could say that there, it has two sources of information or inspiration. It can either refer to its own past knowledge or it can be informed by this larger impersonal intelligence, which is its essence. Now, if the mind refers to its past knowledge, its memory, then its response to the current situation will simply be an extension of that past. Nothing wrong with that at all. But it cannot be more than a reformulation of the past in reference to the current situation. Now, that can be true of a philosophical question, a mathematical problem, It can also be true of a a situation in sport, you're you're playing sport. Your opponent has hit you a, a certain ball and your response to it is the response that you've been training for, for 15 years. You know exactly what to do. You play the response by the book and it's a good response. You play the ball, you get the ball back, you may win the point, but it's a response that comes from your memory, from the past. Now, there's another possibility mathematics, philosophy, uh, music, art, or sport, there's another possibility that when presented with a situation, if you're a tennis player, the situation is the ball, the ball that you are facing, that you don't reach into your memory for the response. You don't reach into the past. Your mind goes silent. It goes quiet. It doesn't search in its memory bank for the correct shot. It goes quiet. And in doing so, it opens itself To this larger impersonal intelligence from which a new response may come. And this new response is an intervention of this larger impersonal intelligence into your finite mind. In relation to a a tennis player, it translates into the shot they play. It becomes inspired. It is not simply an extension of the past. Now, that is what makes a truly great artist or great sports person someone whose mind is not simply reformulating the past in response to the present circumstance it's someone whose mind is open to this this larger dimension and these are the inspired players the inspired artists the inspired mathematicians these are people whose minds bring into our experience, knowledge from a a different dimension and the reason we love to watch these people. And this can be expressed by a a mathematical discovery or a, a new idea in philosophy, but it can also be expressed physically in response to a shot. And the physical action of one who is informed by this larger intelligence conveys that intelligence experientially so when we're watching Federal, we're not thinking about any of these matters I'm just analyzing it and formulating it. but we feel almost in our own body the inspiration from which it came in other words people like this they are artists that give ordinary mortals ordinary people I'm not suggesting that they are not ordinary mortals they are they're just inspired artists but they are for most of us who are not inspired artists, they give us access to this dimension in ourself, and that is what everybody ultimately longs for. Not everybody has, knows their way, knows how to find that access to that intelligence in themselves, not least because we have been trained by our culture just to refer to our past knowledge. That's basically what you get when you go to school and university, you have to study lots of past knowledge and assimilate it all and then reformulate it all in response to a question. So um, we have a very narrow view of education and the use of the mind, but everybody really longs for is not simply a repetition of the past, everybody longs to break through the limitations of their mind and have access to this larger intelligence. And great artists, great thinkers, great sports players give us access to that dimension.
0: Well, that's a lovely explanation. Um, I'm interested then, without uh, the risk of upsetting, let's say, some um, Djokovic, Nadal, whoever else, fans, I think of Roger Federer, and he's won the fan favourite award for certainly 13, 14, 15 years straight. And I remember I was at Wimbledon in 2019 for the final. And even when he's played Andy Murray on center court, he inspires this devotion among fans. Now his personality might not be for everyone's taste, but I think the way he plays um, attracts, well, the facts back it up in terms of the fans favorite award, the way that someone like Roger Federer plays then because of his, that creativity, do you think that what you're talking about there, that, access to not just the training not just the the drills that he will have done hitting forehand cross court backhand cross court time and time again but those flashes of goodness me I've never seen that before yes. is that then him dipping into that uh, vertical yes. dimension you're talking about and is well, that what makes him so popular
3: it's not that he's dipping into it it's that he's open to it and it informs his the way he plays but it doesn't just you know why do i not find myself performing like that on a tennis court? (laughs) Why doesn't that inspiration fall into my mind? Why does it fall into his mind? (laughs) Why don't I have inspired ideas about um, mathematics or astrology? Because my mind in relationship to mathematics and astrology and my body in relationship to tennis has not been trained. It's not the right shape. So my mind has not been trained to receive That inspiration. So Federer has done all the drills. That has prepared his body and indeed his mind, of course, it's also very mental. So that has prepared the, the vessel, so to speak. The vessel is the right shape. And because the vessel is the right shape, it is open to this influx of inspiration. The vessel of my body and mind is not open to inspiration in relation to mathematics or tennis, but my mind is regularly inspired with new understanding in relation to what we are speaking of now. Why? Because I have been thinking about these matters quite intensely for 40-odd years. So my mind has been shaped in a certain way. And the inspiration, it comes from the same intelligence, but the inspiration is tailored to the particular shape of each of our minds. So if you were a mathematician, you would be inspired by a new understanding, in relation to mathematics, if you're a tennis player, it's going to be that shot that nobody knew was possible because it had never been done before. It was not something (laughs) that he didn't train for it. He didn't train to do that. Nobody even believed it was possible. He had never even imagined it, but it came in the moment in response to a particular circumstance. That is a particular shot that he receives from Nadal. Because of all the training he's done, his mind is the right shape But he doesn't just dip into his past knowledge because he is open and in the flow. He is able to produce an inspired response. And so I think that players of this calibre, they model for us what it is like to perform in a way that is open to this greater intelligence. We all have moments of it. I'm not saying that everybody has access to it. Everybody has felt this. But these are people, the great artists, the great sports people. They are people that regularly uh, tap into this broader intelligence and they bring its content into the lives of ordinary people. And that's why we love them. We project onto them kind of godlike status. What we really love actually is not the person. It's not even the ideas or, or the game that they bring. It is that they give us access to this dimension in ourselves. They facilitate our getting in touch with this dimension of our own being. That's what we love. And we project that love onto the person.
0: Yeah. Actually that cause I was gonna ask, because you used the word mortal. We sometimes lose sight of that, don't we? That it's the act we see or the play we enjoy and like you say the experience we rather than the person itself that's right they are just people and we sometimes lose sight of that these people
3: are just as mortal and ordinary as we are but the deeper this universal intelligence if we can call it that this broader intelligence that they have access to is beyond the limit of the human mind so they seem to have access to some non-human realm. In fact, it's not non-human. It, 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 is, it lies in the very depths of each of our minds. But because most of us are not in touch with it, when we see it, we think that's that's inhuman. The commentators, you've heard it so many times. with That's that, not possible. They, it's not possible. <laughs> it's not human. So they are recognizing that Federer, in this case, has tapped into a, an intelligence that is beyond what is normally humanly possible. And for that reason, we we give it the status of divine, something beyond the human. And then we credit the person with this divine status. We treat them like gods. They're not gods. They're just ordinary people like you and I, but they have access to a dimension of intelligence that most minds only occasionally access. And that's what we love. We mistakenly project onto the individual the status of a, of a god. That, that's a mistake we make because the person is just a very ordinary person like all of us. But what is not ordinary is that the realm of intelligence that they have access to and that they bring into the very ordinary human domain for everybody to witness and experience for themselves. I won't mention any any names, but sometimes when you see uh, everyday interviews with some of these godlike players that great footballers that do things that we just didn't know was possible, and as a result, we tend as a culture to project godlike status onto them. If you ever meet any of these people or even if you see an interview of them outside completely out of their field, you think, oh. <laughs> He's just an ordinary person. They seem so, so ordinary. They are ordinary. They're, they're just like us. They're, they're ordinary. But when they are performing, they transcend what we normally consider to be limited human experience, and they bring into the field of limited human experience something that comes from beyond that or rather is prior to that.
0: I think that's why I admire so much the world-class performers who've managed to stay grounded. I think of Josh Butler, who I spoke to on the podcast recently, whose World Cup winner removed the bales when England won the Cricket World Cup, one of the most destructive battles of all, of all time, but very, very humble and down to earth. And I really admire people yes. who don't take those projections on board compared to, because I've I've interviewed some sports people who, who have been dis- I think have lost a little bit of a touch of reality because they've bought into that projection as well.
3: Absolutely. Not only have they bought into that projection that other people confer on them, but they have also identified personally with the source of inspiration to which they had access. And they think, I did that. No, they didn't. It was because they were absent as a person that they were open in that moment to the inspiration. Not understanding that, they claim the inspiration for their own personal achievement. Not only do they claim inspiration for themselves, they also have the projection of other people, and these people become massive egos. And then when they cease performing their sports, they often lose the adulation of the fans, and they no longer have any inspired performance to identify with and because their sense of their identity was invested in their godlike status that others conferred on them and that they conferred upon themselves, they then go into depression and spiral down into addiction in in the worst cases. However, many of the really great players don't identify either with the godlike status that other people confer on them, nor do they claim the inspiration as their own. They know that they were in the zone, so to speak, that something that was larger than them was operating through them. And someone who understands this, they don't become more arrogant, they become more humble. That's why really great artists and musicians and philosophers and sports people, they are truly humble because they realize that their bodies and minds were just used in the service of an intelligence that was intimate but impersonal. And when you see that, when you have both, you have the inspired player, but you have a human being who has been humbled by their experience. Now that is truly inspiring. And when when you see, when you see someone that has both these qualities, I mean, we know there are really inspired players in sports, but they are also big egos. We love what they do, but they don't inspire us in the same way that someone who is both an inspired athlete, but also has this humility in the face of an intelligence, which they do not claim for their own.
0: Yeah, totally agree. I think um, of, it's not just, you, you mentioned addiction and slipping down that path, but I was a sports reporter for Radio One for a long time, fortunate enough to cover all the big events and something I found slightly tragic in places was was the ex pros who perhaps would had an attitude somewhat of well you'd notice them in the media in the media zone because they still had that kind of Peacock strut around, if you know what I mean. Yes, but the ones yes, I the really swagger. admire yes. are the one. Yeah, the swagger. I played once, you know. I I've done that, you know. And the one, the people I've spoken to, I really admire. And if I can just mention a couple of names, so Will Carling, when he retired, he had the ego knocked out of him because he had a bit of a rough rough time. But now he has no memorabilia. He's like, that was then, this is now, and is very very humble. And I, lovely chap against surprised a lot of people. Jamie Peacock, he always said who was the Great Britain rugby league captain, the reason he found um the ability to retire easily was because he he never thought, oh I, I am a rugby player. He thought I am Jamie and I play rugby. So he, he didn't think, have that yes. identity. Yes. Or yes. Mike Brearley, the cricketer, Goldie Sayers, Chrissy Wellington, these people who are who are humble. It's interesting watching those ones who haven't been able to let go. It almost I hate to be rude, but it's almost a little bit tragic to see, to watch.
3: Yes, and to be fair to them, we can't blame them or judge them. The projection, I mean, not only do they have access to this inspiration, which enables them to perform in these superhuman ways, that that, that is not nothing. They also have this huge projection from people that that is something to handle. I don't think we can blame, judge or criticise someone who who does become an inflated ego as a result of this. It requires a, really a depth of understanding not to succumb to that. Handling a projection like that requires some understanding.
0: Which is why fame can be so dangerous, right? But anyway... Before we move on, Rupert, just, just very quickly, because I do just want to draw parallels and, and a very quick one on this. You know, for me, it's watching tennis or sport of all kinds, but particularly tennis. For you, I know I've read in your books, you talk about pieces of art that really move you. And for my wife to be when she sits down to play the piano, when my best friend, when he listens to house music, um, it comes in, in many forms, but it's all it's all the same stuff, right?
3: Exactly. The, the, the great artists, by which I mean those artists who produced work that was not just an extension of what went before them. No, nothing wrong with that. Wonderful things have been produced by people who just continued the work that their predecessors had done in, in the arts, in sports, in music. and But the really great artists, just like the really great sports people we we spoke of, are are those whose work is not just informed by and an extension of the past. Their minds are open to um, the vertical dimension, if we can contrast it with the horizontal dimension of time. They are open to another dimension and their minds are informed by. That's what inspiration is. It means an influx of the spirit. The spirit is the traditional name for this larger intelligence. So a mind that is inspired is a mind that is filled with, with spirit, with this broader, larger intelligence. And in the arts, this gives rise to works of art that um, have the capacity when viewed or listened to, or tasted or seen or they have the capacity to take the viewer or the experiencer, the the listener in the case of music, the viewer in the case of uh, painting or sculpture or dancer, they have the capacity to take the viewer or the listener, the experiencer to the place from which the work of art originated. So the work of art becomes a kind of portal that gives us access to that larger intelligence from which the work of art proceeded or emanated in the first place. And this is why we have art in our culture. I mean, I mean it's why we love art. It's not just a bourgeois luxury. It is a, one of the portals that connects us to the very essence of what it means to be a human being. It is as important to us as the air we breathe.
0: Okay right we've haven't directly explored some of the things I'm keen to so now's a good time as ever to mm-hmm. dive in and I think a good place to start is um is flow this idea of flow and like I said at the start I'm pleased we didn't speak 2 years ago because I now have direct or anecdotal evidence from the world's top sporting performers of experiences of flow so if i give a few examples and um, people can go back and check this out for themselves in the don't turn with the score back catalog so we have for example johnny wilkinson when he kicked the um, winning drop goal in 2003 to give england the world cup a beautiful moment in many people's memories um he said that and i'm quoting from memory so it won't be uh, Completely accurate, but he had an experience of there was it wasn't me kicking it; it was a knowing of it. Then we move on to uh, Frankie Dettori. On that day when he rode the Magnificent Seven, the last ride that day was on a horse who was it was meant to be a complete dud, a complete outsider. And uh, Frankie told me that he um, didn't put any pressure on himself and. I actually listened back to it this morning. I won't do the Italian accent, but he said something like, it was like I was there, but it was like I wasn't there. And then Damon Hill once, when he was driving at Suzuki with uh, Michael Schumacher bearing down on him. And this wasn't long actually after Ayrton Senna had died. And he said, "Um, Ayrton, if you're up there, help me out here. And then he said he, at that point, experienced this moment of there was no it was like i wasn't driving and then actually if you listen to what he says actually i it probably was me la, la, la. but but he had that experience as well yeah. and then i had a fascinating conversation with goldie sayers who's a bit of a go to for me with uh, podcast chats um she's been on a couple of times and i'm thinking of getting her on again to talk specifically about this because we had this this really interesting chat about flow and she talked about when at the t- 2008 olympics and she did a throw and and it was like she was observing everything happening in her body in slow motion. And, oh, my shoulder's in the right place. Oh, this feels good. That feels good. But it was happening rather than she was there. And she came out with this delightful phrase. And she said what she thinks is the beauty of sport that a lot of sports people miss in retirement that perhaps they're not aware of is this experience of seeking effortlessness, which I thought was a really lovely way of putting it. I don't know if you agree or not. But yes, so in each of those cases, there is this dissolution of what we perceive to be the self. Now, there's usually this idea, isn't there in sport, you hear it on match of the day, it's all about trophies. Trophies are what matter. But actually, when you speak to these people, it's these experiences of flow, the characteristics of which are not only a distortion of time, but a dissolution of self, they are the ones that are really like, whoa, that was something else. So, could you just talk a little bit about that from your understanding and those moments and how perhaps, you know, we, we think we seek the achievements and the accolades, but actually perhaps we're seeking those very moments?
3: Absolutely. It's not the trophy. The trophy is at best a symbol of that moment, that experience. The trophy symbolizes that. But it is not that. The trophy by itself, if you melted it down, it's not worth much. Do you spend your whole life training intensely? You give up everything for 20, 30 years of your life for a handful of silver that's worth thousand dollars or something. Is that what people are after? Of course it is not. What they are after is not even the experience of flow itself. But the loss of the sense of being a separate self that is entailed in the experience of flow, that is what people long for, to lose their sense of being a separate self. Now, why do people long for that? Because the separate self is an illusion, albeit a very powerful one that dominates the thoughts and feelings and the subsequent activities and relationships of almost all people. Because we have been conditioned by our culture to believe and feel in ourselves as separate selves. This feeling of separation puts a restriction, a limitation on us. And everything the separate self does, everything the separate self does, is ultimately motivated to shake off the shackle of separation, the, the, the felt sense of separation. Why? Because everybody, all seven billion of us, has a sense that what they essentially are is not separate, temporary, finite, limited. That's why we love freedom. We love freedom because we, everybody knows that what they are inside is ultimately free. It's why we resist anything that curtails our freedom. So what everybody is really seeking is to be divested of the sense of separation. And in the flow, one is acting, but one is not acting as, as a separate self. One is simply participating in the universal flow. The trophy is simply a symbol of that experience. Because after what we call the universe, a universe We don't refer to a multiverse. We call it a universe. It is one thing. The universe is one thing. Whatever its ultimate nature or reality is, it is one. That's what the word universe means. We all know this. There is one universe. Now, the separate self, it's not an entity. There is no real separate self. But the separate self that most people believe and feel themselves to be is a belief whereby we... We separate ourselves out from the universe and believe and, more importantly, feel that we are a discrete, independently existing entity. So with this belief, the universe is divided into self and other, me and you, mind and matter, ultimately. But this is an illusion. This is this belief in self and other is a belief that is superimposed onto the reality, which is one, which is a universe, a single being. It, it appears as many things, but its essence is, is one, single. And we all know this. We all intuitively know this. And we, any sense of separation from the whole, it has two consequences, unhappiness on the inside and conflict on the outside. These are the two inevitable consequences in the belief in separation. Unhappiness on the inside, conflict on the outside. Nobody likes unhappiness, nobody likes conflict. So everything the separate self does, it does in order to find happiness and to have no conflict. The common word for the absence of conflict is love. So everything the separate self does is a search for happiness on the inside and love on the outside. In other words, what the separate self is really seeking is to restore its experience to reality. It, it, it's what the filmmaker Pasolini said. He said, I, I want my films to restore to reality its original sacred significance. But what, what he meant was, I, I filmed to evoke in people the experience that reality is a single whole, indivisible whole. And we participate as apparently separate selves. We participate in that. We are part of the activity of that whole. But we never actually exist as a discrete and independently existing entity. We believe we do. And we pay for that belief with our happiness, with with, with our innate happiness. We forego our innate happiness when we believe ourselves. To be temporary finite and separate and that is the experience that everybody the great mathematicians the philosophers the artists the sports players but also the ordinary people everybody all seven million people are longing all we really ever do is try to divest ourselves of the illusion of separation and as a result taste the nature of reality that is what sports People, that's what artists, it's what philosophers, it's what scientists, it's what everybody is seeking to be divested of the sense of separation. And the trophy is simply a symbol of that. It's worth nothing in itself. And this is corroborated. All the experiences you described, they are in the moment of these um, heightened performances, they are temporarily divested of the sense of separation. And it's ecstatic they feel joy. They feel love. They feel peace. What they're really feeling is they're not having an extraordinary experience. What they're actually experiencing is reality as it is. It only seems extraordinary by contrast with the previous belief in themselves as separate selves.
0: Hopefully, we'll get on to a little bit of uh, how one can at least aspire to start down that path a couple of thoughts that sprung to mind when you mentioned about the medal goldie sayers got her medal 11 years after the 2008 games because um basically the person who got silver in 2008 turned out to have failed a drugs test so she was awarded this medal 11 years late and then uh, when we spoke she found it quite amusing that she now has it hanging on a silver stag's head on her wall Above a new recycling bin, and she says she finds it amusing how strangely unattached to this this medal is. And then you mention as well about tasting reality, or and Johnny Wilkinson said this at the height of his success. So around sort of two thousand and three, he would feel that all the pain and the stress outside of the game were leading to the enjoyment. But then between the whistles, when that he was like, oh, I can let go, and that was the beauty. And he would always say he would happily swap that second just after the whistle had gone when they had won whatever trophy it was, whether it be in his last match of his whole career for his club or for England. He would swap that for five minutes before when they were still playing and he was still engrossed in the moment. You mentioned the separate self, okay? Now, some people are going to be thinking, what on earth are you on about? (laughs) I don't mean to be rude, but that it's going to be new to some people. So I've got two questions, really. First of all, as I understand it, and do correct me, it, it's us getting muddled up in, in objective reality. So thoughts, feelings, perceptions, sensations, et cetera, et cetera. Correct me if I'm wrong. So then the obvious process to go through, and I enjoy doing this sometimes with my friends, and they're always like, ooh, that's, yes, it's undeniable. But I completely nicked it from you, not going to lie. But yes, if we could just run through a quick you know, self-inquiry from the point of view of the old netty Netti, not this, not that- So people could perhaps understand a little bit more what you mean when you say that the separate self or the illusion of the separate self. If you could just run us through that, that would be great.
3: We all feel that we have been the same person throughout our lives. You you feel that I am Simon now. You feel that I was Simon five minutes ago. I was Simon five days ago. I was Simon five years ago. I was Simon when I was a five-year-old boy. You feel that there has been a continuity of your identity that has run through your life. And that that continuity is, it's the continuity of who you really are. It is yourself that has continued. So what has continued in your life? What is it in your experience that accounts for this conviction that you have? My identity is continuous. Is it your thoughts? Thoughts are obviously not continuous. You can think one thing one day. You can think the opposite the next day. So your thoughts obviously don't constitute your essential identity. They are something that appear to you. They are superfluous. It's like a shirt that you put on. Your thoughts are not essential to you. There are times when you're not thinking at all, but when you're not thinking, you, whatever you essentially are, remains in the absence of thought. Yeah? Same is true of your sensations. You have your hand on your face at the moment. That's a sensation, yes? And take your hand away. Yes. That sensation goes. Yeah. The sensation's vanished. Did you vanish? No. You, or whatever you essentially are, has remained. That is true of every sensation you have ever had. So the sensations through which we experience the body cannot be part of our essential identity. They are added to us and removed from us like a sweater. The same is true of your relationships. The same is true of your activities. The same is true of your feelings. The same is true of your perceptions of the world. All of these, none of them are permanent. They all come and go. They are intermittent. So your conviction that You are always the same self. Cannot be derived from any of the changing elements of experience. So what does it come from? What is it that accounts for your absolute certainty? I am always present. I'm always myself.
0: You want me to answer this, right?
3: Yes. yes. That which is aware of it. Exactly. There is one element of your experience that doesn't come and go. Namely, your, your being, or we could say the fact of being aware. So everything that we are aware of is temporary. It comes and goes. Thoughts, images, feelings, activities, relationships, sensations, beset- all of these are, are temporary. They are what we are aware of. But there's one element of experience, the fact of being aware, consciousness that remains consistently present throughout all changing experience. So I would suggest that awareness or consciousness, or I use the words synonymously, uh, is our essential identity. Now, if you now imagine, we're not asking anyone to believe it, you just consider it as a, as a possibility. If we were to remove from awareness everything that can be removed from awareness. What can we say about awareness itself? To give you a a visual analogy, it's like saying, remove everything from the room in which you are sitting that is not essential to the room. So take out the lamp, take out the chair, take out the radiator, take out the picture, take out the table, take out the computer, take out everything. To even remove the walls, they have not always been there. Take out everything, remove everything that can be removed. What is the nature of the space that remains? Now, we do the same thing. Just space. Just space. And and let's do it with space first. Okay, we've removed everything. What what can we say about that space? It, It is, it is present. What else?
0: It doesn't have, there's no resistance in it. It it, it has no objective qualities.
3: It has no objective qualities and therefore no limitations. Now, do exactly the same thing with the space of awareness within which our experience arises. Remove our thoughts. It's just a, a thought experiment. Just imagine we remove everything from awareness that can be removed from it thoughts, images, feelings, sensations, perceptions, what, what remains just the fact of being aware or awareness itself. Now, what is its nature?
0: Its nature is it's open, unresistant. So there's no resistance in it. It's open, allowing, accepting, yes. free, and as you would say, un- unlimited in that it has no it, start it, and no it's end. It's
3: unlimited because, it. It, because there's nothing in it. We, we've emptied it of content. The content of experience has been removed. So it's there's there's no form. There's nothing objective in it, like the empty space of your room after everything is there's nothing objective there, and because there's nothing objective there, there's nothing limited there. So what we are saying is that the very essence of ourself is unlimited, not separate, not temporary, not finite. It is only when our essential self of pure awareness becomes mixed up with the content of experience, that it seems to acquire its limitations. And we seem as a result to become a temporary, finite, separate entity. And this, in other words, we could say that our essential being is clothed in experience and seems to become, seems to acquire the limitations of experience. Thoughts are limited. Feelings are limited. Sensations are limited. So when our essential being or the fact of being aware becomes mixed up with the content of experience, it seems to acquire its limitations. The unlimited, open, empty space of awareness becomes or seems to become a temporary, finite, limited self. And that is, it doesn't really become that. It all takes place in the imagination. We believe and as a result, we feel we are this separate limited self. And because we believe this, our innate qualities, as you said, openness, allowing, imperturbable, undisturbable, at peace, our essential qualities of peace, joy, openness are veiled or obscured because we have identified ourselves with the content of experience. And that is why the primary emotion that, uh, so the separate self now feels itself to be limited, to be a fragment. And as this fragment, there are two emotions that are essential to it. One, it feels incomplete and therefore it is always seeking happiness. And two, it feels that it is fragile. Uh, vulnerable, uh, destined to die, and therefore it is always seeking to protect itself. So these two primary emotions or activities of of seeking and resisting characterize the apparently separate self. But all we are really seeking is not the object, the substance, the activity, the trophy. What we are really seeking is to return to our essential nature, we are seeking to to be undressed, to be divested of the limitations that we have become mixed up with. In other words, we're seeking to return to our essential nature. That's all anybody truly ever longs for. Indeed, the desire for intimacy in relationship is the desire for the loss of the sense of separation. That's what intimacy in relationship is. We feel one with the other. We lose our sense of being a separate self. That's why we love intimate relationship. It's not really the other person. It's the loss of the sense of separation that we look for. If we invest the other person with the ability to affect this loss of the sense of separation in us, then we place on them an impossible demand. Because another person cannot really do that for us. And that is often the why conflicts in relationships begin, is because our, our partner fails to live up to our impossible demand. What is the demand? Please remove from me my sense of separation. Well, in the early days, our partner does do that for us, so we love them. But later on, they can't possibly do that for us. So then that's when the conflicts begin.
0: And then we're back to square one. So just to go back to the separate self and objective experience. So thoughts, so we are not our thoughts. So that includes memories, uh, images, Images reasoning. So that's all bracketed under thoughts. Perceptions, so what we see, what we hear, what we taste, Taste, smell. smell, Um,
3: It's the way we experience the world, perception, yes
0: sensations so if I punch myself on the arm oh that's a sensation but it it doesn't stay sensations in that yeah yes feelings and emotions so all of these things come and go but that which is aware of all of them that never comes and goes it's always there and that's that experience of I am that has passed all through our lives we always yes experience ourselves as being present and so, this is so when you said unlimited, I just want to dig into that because that I think can give an image perhaps of, oh, if something's unlimited, you can almost imagine it extending off into the distance forever and ever, amen. But actually, what it just means is so thoughts are limited in that they have a beginning and an end. Same with feelings, same with sensations, same with perceptions, anything that can come and go. Whereas the awareness that we experience everything with. We can't turn it off. I can't, I might be able to shut my eyes and not see you, but I can't, I've struggled to shut my ears and not hear you. The awareness is always there, even for example, in sleep when we're aware of of dreams. So that the awareness uh, is unlimited in that sense.
3: Yes, I was going to say, even if you do turn off your perceptions, your sensations, your thinking, and you don't see anything, you don't hear anything, you don't think anything, you don't feel anything. As we we do, for instance, in deep sleep or under anesthesia, the awareness is still present. It's just not aware of anything. In other words, deep sleep is not the absence of awareness, as many people think it is. It is the awareness of absence. In other words, what has been turned off is not awareness. It's the faculty of thinking, sensing, and perceiving. That is turned off in deep sleep or under anesthetic. But awareness is... It's like the sun. It is never turned off. It is always on, always shining,
1: always present, always aware. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify.
0: You mentioned the word consciousness, and I think that has different meanings to different people. Some might say, oh, I'm unconscious, and they might mean, you know, I'm asleep. There's also that other definition of consciousness, which is what it's like to be something, I think, um, is one that's often used. I know I've heard Sam Harris talk about it, but really you're just talking in terms of consciousness. You're just talking about the experience of being aware. That's what you mean when you say conscious. The
3: fact of being aware
0: the fact of being aware, which is undeniable to all of us. And because it has no objective qualities at all, it's no different in me than it is in you, than it is in any of the other 7 billion people, or indeed any of the animals or anything like that. Yes,
3: you are in London, is that right?
0: Well, on the border with Surrey, we're on the okay, way.
3: Okay, let's the... say you're in Surrey. So you're sitting in your, in your room in Surrey, and I'm sitting in your study in Surrey, I'm sitting in my study in, in Oxford. We're sitting in two separate spaces, And there are innumerable such spaces on the Earth. Well, is that really true? Are there really innumerable spaces? Is the space, if you were to take a sample of the space in your room and I were to take a sample of the space in my room, and we were also to take a sample of the space a mile up into the sky and compare them, they'd all be the same. There's only one physical space in the universe. That one space seems to be enclosed by the four walls of innumerable rooms. And as a result, there seem to be numerous separate physical spaces, but there aren't. The four walls of my room don't really limit the space of this room. The space itself is unlimited or infinite. Well, I would suggest that awareness was the same. The content of each of our minds is different. These are the equivalent of the objects in each of our rooms. But the essence of each of our minds, namely pure consciousness or pure awareness, I would suggest is the same awareness. In other words, just as there is only one physical space in the universe, I would suggest in reality there is only one consciousness or one awareness. And it is the same consciousness that perceives through the limited faculties of each of our minds so the content of each of our minds is different but the essence of each of our minds namely consciousness or awareness is is the same this is what enables the experience of love to take place love i would suggest is the recognition that at the deepest level we share our being isn't that what you feel when you love someone you feel that the Everything that separates you from them, to a greater or lesser degree, dissolves. Sometimes you say to someone, I feel one with you. There's no me and you. Yeah. In other words, there you are tasting your shared being. That's what love is, the recognition or the taste of our shared being. What I'm suggesting sounds possibly far-fetched to some people, or a little philosophical, or the suggestion that, The awareness with which each of us is aware of our experience is the same awareness. But I would suggest that as an idea, it may sound unfamiliar to us. But as an experience, the experience of love or beauty, it is very common. Not only is it very common, it's the experience we love above all else. Is there anything you love more than love? Everybody loves love above all else, love or happiness.
0: Now, it might sound like a bit of an outlandish claim to suggest that we have a shared being. But actually, this is just a very quick detour for anyone who's perhaps a little bit lost or thinks this is so far out of the mainstream. But there actually have been some very eminent scientists who've pointed in a similar direction. So Max Planck is the obvious one, was the Nobel Prize winning physicist who claimed sometime in the 20th mid 20th century that he saw consciousness as you've defined it as being fundamental as being primary as in you can't get behind consciousness and that out of consciousness comes things come matter everything like that and not the other way around which is which is the way we currently understand it the the kind of the existing paradigm now before we get into that Rupert I'm going to leave that tantalizingly there okay okay before we get into that I want to come back just briefly to this the separate self okay and you described it as in being like taking off all our clothes and stripping back to our essential nature so that unlimited non-objective aware being that we are at our core, which is what you say. And I'm interested then in identity because people like to cling to identity. If I think in sport, let's take an example in sport, in football. Now, a lot of people really identify with their football team. And I always think of quite a funny example, which is that I remember listening to a a football phone-in once and Chelsea had just won the Premier League. And a fan rang in, and the guy on the other end started the call by saying, "Is Bob Chelsea fan? Congratulations, Bob, on winning the champion, on winning the Premier League." <laughs> <laughs> and, and this gentleman, this gentleman, actually said, "Thank you, in all seriousness." It, it, yes. like, you know, yeah, he felt that, he felt yeah, the Well done, the Bob, well done, <laughs> yes. yeah. well done, Bob. You've really, you've really done your bit. So there's yeah. the, people are really cling, clinging to or, or like to have identities. You only have to look at Twitter bios. I, I have this political affiliation. I support this team. Or, you know, I'm a father. I'm blah, 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 whatever it may be. But actually, are the implications of what you're saying, that, that actually not only do we not need any identity, at our core, we don't have one.
3: It's not that we don't have an identity. There is something in our experience that is referred to by the word I or self or myself or being. There is an experience that corresponds to these words. But what I would suggest is that that essential self or being is not in any way limited. And that what is called the or referred to sometimes as the separate self or the ego is an apparent limitation of our essentially unlimited being. Now, how does this apparent limitation take place? Through belief. And it is later substantiated by feeling. But it is essentially a belief. I, Bob, am identical to I, Bob, won the premiership. Bob has identified himself, not only with his own thoughts, images, feelings, activities, relationships. He's He substantiated his belief in himself as a separate identity by affiliating himself with a political movement, a football team, uh, an ideology. And in in this way, he has uh, substantiated the illusion of being a separate self. He, we pay for this illusion with our happiness.
0: So our real identity according to your philosophy is aware being and in my identity is the same as your identity is the same yes. as everyone else's identity yes. that's and it's our na- true exactly
3: identity. and and its nature as you said earlier when i asked you about the what is the nature of the space you said it's open it's empty there's no resistance in it it cannot be disturbed is there anything you could do in your room now to disturb the space Nothing. Space cannot be disturbed. Why can space not be disturbed? Because there's nothing in it that could resist any activity. It is always at peace with whatever's going on. You could be, you're sitting there quietly uh, having a conversation. You could be dancing. You could be fighting. You could, the, the space would not be disturbed. Why? Because it doesn't resist. So the space of awareness, if we can call it a space of awareness, is it, like that. It, it's open. It's just open without resistance. all experience, and therefore it cannot be disturbed. Well, the common name for the absence of disturbances is is peace. So it's for this reason that I would suggest the nature of awareness, that is the nature of ourself, is peace. Likewise, nothing that ever takes place in your room adds anything to the space. If you were to discover now that you just won a million dollars on the lottery, the space would not be aggrandized. In any way, nothing would be added to it. Nothing is ever removed from it. In other words, it it is whole. It is complete, independent of what is or is not taking place within it. So awareness is similar. It is whole, perfect, complete. It is never aggrandized or diminished by experience. It, it, It wants for nothing. Now, what is the common name for wanting nothing or lacking nothing? Happiness. Happiness. So I would suggest that peace and happiness are the nature of ourselves, not something that we might become if we acquire X, Y, or Z in the future. I I would suggest it is the very nature of each of us. Now, even when we are deeply depressed, our true nature of happiness is lying just underneath or behind the depression, so to speak. It is everybody's nature and the only place to find it is in ourself.
0: Yeah. So just to pick up on the this aggrandizing or taking away, I always think for me the most obvious example of this is babies. When babies are born, out they pop and it's immediately obvious that they don't need to do anything to be lovable, acceptable, absolutely fine. It's absolutely obvious. In fact... That 's almost when they're at their most lovable, when they are without identity, they may soil themselves in polite company, but we don't bat an eyelid and it's only as we only as we as thought starts to come in that starts judging things as as yes. good or bad, so i 'm thinking of Johnny wilkinson he he talked about an understanding of his infinite capacity to accept because awareness it doesn't say no to this and yes to that or this is good or this is bad that part of us which is aware says yes to everything it's only when thought comes in that starts labeling things as good or bad and also believes that we need to aggrandize or that we're broken so that's why i always prefer self-acceptance over for example self-esteem which is like i'm good at all this stuff actually no it's self-acceptance is more in line with that awareness part which is just a big fat yes.
3: Yes, awareness says yes to everything indiscriminately, just like the space of your room accepts whatever takes place within it indiscriminately. Whereas the mind says yes to some things and no to others. So self acceptance, there are two possible interpretations of self acceptance. Self acceptance, we could say is either the nature of awareness, and it it is inherently accepting or allowing of whatever takes place within it. In other words, self-acceptance is what awareness is, not what awareness does. Now, we said that the mind says yes to some things and no to other things. There's another kind of self-acceptance which involves the mind saying yes to certain things about ourself. That is not the true self-acceptance. It may be a stepping stone. But it is, it's not real self-acceptance. It can change any time into its opposite. The true self-acceptance, which is awareness's inherent openness to every aspect of experience, that includes every aspect of our own character, it cannot change into its opposite. It is what we are, not what we do. As such, it is the true self-acceptance, and it does not need to be practiced We only have to practice something that is not essential to us. That's the beauty of this. It's a matter of understanding or recognizing the nature of ourselves, rather than practicing anything or becoming something.
0: Mm, Yes. And just to follow on from that becoming, another theme that's come up a lot through the episodes I've done, and that seems to be really rearing its head increasingly just of its own accord which makes total sense with what we're talking about this idea that when you let's say win the world cup or win wimbledon or whatever it may be or for us less creative types get the job we wanted get the relationship we wanted get the car we wanted get the bank balance we wanted all these different things but let's stick with you know, winning the World Cup as Johnny did or winning Wimbledon as Martin has done nine times. And Johnny, I thought, again, spoke about it really powerfully in terms of he felt very grateful that he realised that satisfaction was not to be found in reaching the destination. And he suggested that in society there is this widespread belief that fulfillment and satisfaction exists at some point in the future when x happens whether it's the world cup whether it's the job whether it's the relationship or whatever and he and plenty of others have said that they understand through experience so they were lucky to have that experience that that is not true
3: you've put your finger on the the essential thing that the belief that satisfaction peace happiness is something that we will find in the future when X happens, whatever X is for each of us, the next job, the next relationship, that happiness is caused by and dependent on external factors, something that we can seek and acquire. Now, why do we think this? It's because when we do get a particular object or a substance or relationship, We do feel happy and therefore we put two and two together. We realize I got this relationship. It made me happy. Therefore, the relationship was the cause of the happiness. I got the new job and I was immediately happy. So the new job obviously caused the happiness. I won the World Cup and I was happy. So winning the World Cup was obviously the cause of my happiness. This is a a misunderstanding. Acquiring the relationship, the job, winning the game, whatever it is, put an end to our previous sense of dissatisfaction. It put an end to our search. And when the search came to an end, our innate happiness was revealed. Who was it that spoke of seeking effortlessness? You quoted oh, the wonderful uh,
0: Goldie Sayers.
3: That's right. Goldie Sayers is this, this wonderful phrase seeking effortlessness. It's, of course, she understands this. You understand this. But seeking effortlessness is a contradiction of terms because seeking is, by definition, an effort. It is not possible to seek effortlessness because effortlessness is what is present before the seeking begins. To think that one can acquire effortlessness as a result of seeking is absurd. What is it that winning the World Cup, getting the relationship, getting the job does? It puts an end to the activity of seeking, revealing the effortlessness that was already there, but obscured by the activity of seeking. Now, the same person goes inwards towards or into their innate effortlessness prior to seeking. They access this effortlessness in themselves prior to the activity of seeking. They do not allow it to depend upon the activity of seeking. If we think that effortlessness or satisfaction or happiness, depends upon the activity of seeking. We will think that it depends upon the object, the substance, the activity, the relationship, etc. And it's true that as long as that object, substance, activity, relationship lasts, we will feel happiness. But all objects, substances, they all come to an end. If our happiness is dependent upon them, the happiness will come to an end. And we don't want just temporary fleeting moments or periods of happiness. Everybody wants lasting happiness and in order to find lasting happiness we need to look for it in the one thing that lasts in our experience namely our own being
0: right i've got a good example for you rupert here before we dive into finding that lasting happiness here's a good example right so my um beloved other half and i like to watch something amusing last thing at night just because we finish the day on with a bit of a chuckle and um we were watching uh, a stand-up comic, a one-liner comic, right? So it's just one-liner after one-liner. Set up, knock down, set up, knock down, set up, knock down, you know? And I was thinking, is the same thing happening there because we're sort of building up and then immediately exactly. let go. Building up, exactly. let go.
3: Exactly. That's why we love comedy and, and a good comic, no, not the type you were watching last night, the one-lines, but, but take a, a good storyteller. A good storyteller yeah. knows how to eke out a story. You think he or she is going to get to the end, and then oh, no, there's another twist. And what are they doing? They are ramping up the tension. They're ramping up the suspense. You think it's going to the oh, Same with music. You think the music is going to resolve? No, oh, it goes off into a different key, in another direction. And you're the tension is increasing. The tension, and then same with a poem. A poem takes you on a journey. Where are we going? You, you, you build this sense of, I'm, I'm going somewhere. I'm, and then the last line is very often there. The line that brings your the state of heightened tension to an end. The punchline of the joke. The tension is, is released. And there's that moment of joy. While the comedian is telling the joke, our mind is in a state of activity, anticipation. We're following the storyline. yeah, And then when we burst out laughing, that's another activity of this case, an activity of the body. But in between these two, the telling of the joke and the laughter, something happens. And what that something is takes place in between two activities of the mind. It's called understanding. In that gap, between the joke and the laughter, that the mind comes briefly to an end, or rather it is divested of its limitations and it tastes its essence, which is joy. It can also be said to be called understanding. And it is a result of that joy or understanding that the laughter begins. So we place ourselves in the hands of a comedian in order to have our essential nature of joy revealed to us. The comedian doesn't give us anything. The comedian gives us access to our own innate joy, as does a poet, a musician, a sports player.
0: Which is why these things are all so important. And I'm going to sound like I'm trying to be down with the kids now, but it's taken me back to my clubbing days when the DJ would build up, and then to use the... Uh, I mean, I really am sounding like I'm, you know, an old fuddy-duddy trying to be down with the 20s. But, you know, he dropped the beat and everyone's like, oh, you know, and then the whole yes. crowd sort of goes ballistic because there's that tension that's just been ramping up. Oh, he's going to do it now. He's going to do it now. And then it goes. So same thing. Right. Let's then um, talk about how one cultivates, probably not the right word, but move in the direction of happiness or peace that doesn't continually come and go, the... The grasping and the pushing away. The I want to hang on to this pleasurable activity, or I don't want to. I don't want to experience this unpleasurable activity. So how how does one become settled or go about developing a root or a grounding in awareness? Which sounds a bit bizarre because we've just been talking about how it's who we are. But so how? How did you find it and how would you advocate anyone listening go start this process of becoming more grounded in what we're talking about?
3: Well, one of the first spontaneous experiences I had was listening to a a concert. It was a a piano recital and, and I noticed my attention was totally absorbed in the music. And at some stage during the concert, there was a spontaneous and natural relaxation of the focus of my attention. So my attention, having been directed towards the music, absorbed in the music, it relaxed and it was like it just relaxed back into myself and I became aware, not only of the music, but I became aware that I was aware. Previously, my awareness had been so lost in the music that I had overlooked the fact of being aware. And now there was a spontaneous relaxation of my attention, and my attention came back to the fact of being aware. And so that was the very first time I noticed it. I then realized later that one could cultivate this relaxation of the attention, this returning of the attention to its source or the fact of being aware by simply letting go of the content of experience. The first time it happened to me, it was it was just spontaneous. It happened and I was surprised. I thought, oh, I was absorbed in the music and now I notice that I'm aware of the music. So you can cultivate that. Oh, instead of being lost in my feelings, my activities, my thoughts, my relationships, I, I'm aware of them. I'm, so to speak, watching them a bit like I'd watch a movie except the screen on which they are taking place is not, the glass screen of the TV two or three meters away. It is the screen of my own awareness. I become, so you soften the focus of your attention from the content of experience and come back to the simple fact of being aware. Oh, I am aware of these. They are not what I am. They are objects of my experience, subtle objects, thoughts, images, feelings, memories, sensations. But they are not what I essentially am. They appear to me. They exist for a while and then they vanish. It's this stepping back. It's not a rejection of experience. It's not a judgment of experience. It's not an attempt to change experience or, or get rid of any particular experience or acquire any particular experience. It has nothing to do with the content of experience. It has everything to do with the context of experience, the context within which experience is happening, namely awareness. I would recommend just letting go of the content of experience. We all do it spontaneously every night when we fall asleep. When we fall asleep, our thoughts leave us, our relationships, our activities, our sensations, our perceptions, and we're left all alone in the peace of deep sleep. That's why we look forward to sleep at night. We don't dread deep sleep. Everybody loves deep sleep because it's peaceful there. Why? Because everything has left us. All the disturbing thoughts and feelings and activities, they've all left us. They left us in peace. Now, what I'm suggesting is, is like falling asleep, but we remain awake while we're doing it. And we don't actually have to get rid of the thoughts, feelings, sensations or perceptions. We just soften the focus of our attention from them. and. Come back to ourself, so to speak. Not ourself, the body and the mind. The body and the mind are objects of experience that we are aware of. So when I say come back to ourself, I mean come back to our essential being, the simple fact of being aware, just the awareness of being.
0: So just to take one of the titles of your one of your books, Becoming Aware of Being Aware...
3: Being aware of being aware, exactly, instead of being exclusively aware of the content of experience, in other words, instead of being exclusively aware of what we are aware of, we become aware of the fact of being aware. Instead of being lost in the content of experience, we disentangle ourselves from the content of experience and recognize ourself as the fact of being aware, which is, as you hinted earlier, intimately one with all experience, and at the same time, free or independent of it. It does not need to be made free or independent through practice or discipline or effort. It, its nature is as such, just as the, the screen is utterly, intimately one with the movie, but is at the same time free of it. It is not conditioned or qualified by the movie. Well, awareness is like that, intimately one with all experience, but at the same time, inherently free of it. And that recognition is the recognition of the nature of our self-awareness. It's the greatest recognition that is possible.
0: So two things. First of all, so for example, when a thought arises, we can think, oh, there's the thought and there I am, but actually thought and awareness arising together at the same time.
3: Awareness is not arising. The awareness is ever-present. The thought arises, exists briefly, and disappears.
0: But there's no subject, the subject-object aspect of it is an illusion.
3: That's right, yes. Yes. Yes, when we fall asleep at night uh, and we dream that we're walking on the streets of Paris, our own mind, asleep in London or wherever, we forget that we're asleep in London. We imagine the streets of Paris within our own mind. But in order to view the streets of London, we have to localize ourselves in the dreamed world. So our own mind forgets that it is creating the dream world. And it localizes itself as a separate subject of experience in that dream world, from whose perspective the dreamed world is known. So from the perspective of the dreamed character, its experience takes place in subject-object relationship, either character walking on the streets of Paris and the subject of my experience, and everyone and everything else are separate objects of my experience. Then we wake up and we realize, ah, the separate subject and object of experience were illusions. They were just the means by which I was able to dream the streets of Paris. They were the mechanism through which my mind was able to manifest the dream. Nothing wrong with that appearance, with the subject-object relationship. It, It is necessary, otherwise you can't perceive your dream. However, the subject-object relationship is not inherent to reality. The reality of the dreamed world is the activity of your single homogeneous mind. Well, the perennial understanding, the non-dual understanding suggests that that reality, the reality that we know of as both the universe and ourselves is, is a single indivisible reality made of one substance. And that the subject-object relationship is just a mechanism which enables reality to be perceived as the universe. But the subject-object relationship is not inherent in reality. It is a mode of perception that enables reality to appear as the universe.
0: That takes us nicely back to that little quote I dropped in earlier of Max Planck's. Absolutely. So Max that- Planck, like I said, Nobel Prize winning physicist who said, I regard consciousness as fundamental. You can't get behind consciousness. I think, did Einstein say have something to say about it? And, but the current paradigm mm-hmm. that we exist in, though, does not conform. People didn't follow say, oh, yes, Max has got it right and, and continue down that path. The current paradigm that we exist in is that there is matter. So, for example, there is my brain and out of my brain comes consciousness. Now, what you're arguing is pretty against the mainstream insofar as what you're saying is that we've got it the wrong way round. So, um, first of all, why do you think people didn't listen to Max and to what degree do you think this? this understanding is becoming more pervasive cuz i think as someone like bernardo Castrup, who i know you're friends with you know he was a, he's a, a scientist of the very top order works at the hadron collider writes books that are pretty much impenetrable to me i'm not going to lie and you know he says from a scientific point of view what you're saying doesn't he yes. your understandings yes. coming at yes. it from slightly different un, from angles but really you're arguing the same thing so why why do you think um, people haven't been quick to, or haven't adopted Max's, <laughs> well, it, it, uh, Max Planck's view of things? And, and do you think it is something that is inevitable going to come?
3: Yes, I think it's something inevitable that's going to come, because if it doesn't come, um, humanity will almost certainly destroy itself. I don't think it will destroy its planet, but it, I think it will destroy itself, because conflict is the inevitable consequence of the materialist paradigm that, for the last few hundred years, uh, has dominated humanity, but it takes time for a paradigm to change. People used to think that um, the Earth was flat. Two or three hundred years BC, it was first suggested that the Earth was not flat, but it took it took centuries for this idea to be accepted. The idea that um, the sun doesn't go round the earth, but rather the earth goes round the sun. I think this was suggested several hundred years BC. It took another thousand years for Copernicus to enshrine this in the, the mainstream understanding. Th- these were two massive paradigm shifts that uh, took centuries to be adopted. So people have suggested two and a half thousand years ago at the dawn of Western civilization, pre-Socratic philosophers who suggested what I am suggesting now, Parmenides and others. And and even before that in the East, a thousand years before that, this same understanding was being suggested in India and the East. It, it has taken a, a long and a many philosophers, both East and West, have suggested this over the centuries. And as you say, um, there were a whole series of physicists, Max Planck uh, amongst them, who suggested the same. Why are we so slow to consider this new possibility? Well, I think we are. Uh, I think we're witnessing everywhere in society now the breakdown of the old paradigm. We are seeing the inevitable effects of the old paradigm in terms of the extent of the unhappiness that people feel within themselves and the extent of conflict between individuals, communities and nations on the outside. These are the inevitable consequences of our dualistic, materialistic paradigm. Why do we have this materialistic paradigm? It's simply because we trust the evidence of sense perception. Uh, Einstein said, um, Common sense, the evidence of the common senses, sense perception, is a series of prejudices that most people acquire by the age of 18. Sense perception does not give us an accurate picture of reality. On the contrary, sense perception filters reality and makes it appear in a way that enables us to function in society it doesn't give us a it's not a window onto reality it is a filtering of reality but we forget that so we believe that the evidence of sense perception namely that there is something outside consciousness called matter which in fact gives rise to consciousness nothing has ever actually been experienced outside consciousness all that is ever experienced is experienced in consciousness so nobody has ever or could ever come in contact with anything outside consciousness. And yet we have trusted the evidence of sense perception, believe that there is something outside consciousness. I'm not just talking about, when I say consciousness, I don't mean a, an individual mind, I a universal consciousness. We, ha- we have trusted the evidence of sense perception, believe that there is a dead, inert stuff called matter, and moreover, we believe that matter gives rise to consciousness we believe that consciousness is an epiphenomenon of the brain. But there is a correlation between brain activity and subjective inner experience. That is undeniable. But we make a mistake in presuming, therefore, that brain activity, physical matter, generates or causes consciousness. That is a mistake. And we are, look around you in Society, we are paying that. People, individuals pay for this mistake with their happiness. Society pays for it with its sanity.
0: And this is known as the hard problem of consciousness, isn't
3: it? The, the, The hard problem of consciousness is how does dead, inert matter give rise to conscious experience? How could the arrangements of Inert subatomic particles give rise to the feeling of being in love or tasting tea or watching a sunset? How how does it give rise to consciousness? And and of course, it's a false problem because there is a presumption in the question, namely that dead inert matter does give rise to consciousness. In order to formulate the hard problem of consciousness, How does matter give rise to consciousness? You have to first presume that it does. If we presume that matter gives rise to consciousness, then we have a real problem on our hands. How does it do so? Nobody has any idea at all, even theoretically, as to how this might take place. Well, could it be that the assumption upon which the question is founded is erroneous. The hard problem of consciousness will never be answered because it is a false question. All that we can do is undermine the premise on which the question is based and consider another possibility. Could it be that matter is not fundamental, but consciousness is fundamental? and matter is how the activity of consciousness appears when viewed from a localized perspective just as the streets of paris that you dream of at night are the activity of your own mind but viewed from the perspective of the dreamed character the streets of paris don't look like the activity of a great mind they look like stuff made out of matter. So the activity of the dreamer's mind looks like matter when viewed from a localized perspective. Well, consider the possibility that the universe is what the activity of consciousness looks like when it is perceived from the localized perspective of each of our minds. Another physicist, uh, uh, James Jean, said the same thing. Uh, The more deeply you go into explore the nature of the universe, the more the universe begins to look like uh, the activity of a great mind rather than the workings of a great machine.
0: And that makes sense, I think. If we think, what, the 19th century was the century of the machine, and we're definitely getting more away into sort of artificial intelligence and everything like that. So uh, there's probably... To me, anyway, that's probably not a complete coincidence. In terms of the premise, so this underlying premise that exists, Rupert, in terms of matter gives rise to mind, to consciousness. And we see at the moment in the world all these conflicts taking place. So, for example, in America, if we look at the political systems there, I mean, they've never been as at each other's throats it's not unusual, I think, for people on the right to decry people on the left as pretty terrible people and and vice versa. And then if you look back through the 20th centuries, all the different political systems, you know, we've got capitalism through to socialism and all these kind of things. Is it your view then until the paradigm that you talk about shifts, all of these things are just shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic?
3: Yes, is the short answer to your question. I'm not suggesting that it's not valid to shuffle the deck chairs. I don't think it's quite like that, that there's a value to the changes that we make in society now in relation to equality and and race and, and health. And these are valid endeavors, even under the existing paradigm. But ultimately, These won't make a long-term difference. If there is to be long-term change, we can't just rearrange the furniture. There has to be a, a paradigm shift. What is that paradigm shift in relation to politics, for instance? It's very simple. Imagine if all politicians understood that they shared their essential being with everyone doesn't mean to say they agree with their thoughts. They could disagree with with their thoughts. You and I, we might have a disagreement as to whether Federer or Nadal is the best player or or whoever. We, We could disagree, yeah? But that disagreement tells us nothing about the relationship of our essential being one to the other. We could still have a deep sense of sharing our being and yet disagree about politics or sports. Now, most people don't just have a disagreement about ideas. Most people feel that their self is different, separate from everybody else's self. And if they feel they share their being, their self, it's usually a very small circle that their family and their friends. So they feel one with their family and friends. But there's a line for everyone, for most of us. It's a, a gray area, but there's a line beyond which everyone else is other. People on this side of the line are one with myself. I love them. I would never do anything to harm them. Why? Because I feel that if I harm them, I harm myself. We don't harm our child because we, we are one with our child. If our child is hurting and upset, we feel upset. Why? Because we feel that their being is our being. What happens to them happens to us. So we would never we would never do anything to, to knowingly hurt someone we love, that is, someone we feel one with. Well, does it make sense that our being is one with some people and a few animals, our, our dog and our cat, but not with everybody else? It's irrational. If being is one, it is one. If it is many, it is many, in which case we are separate from everyone, including our own children. But we don't feel that. So the paradigm shift is simply the understand, the felt understanding that we share our being with everyone and everything. What kind of a world would we live in? If our politicians, the heads of our institutions, our teachers, parents, all of us, felt this, just this simple, and we acted in a way that was consistent, to the best of our ability with this understanding. So it's not sometimes during this conversation, we've gone down a pathway, it might seem complex, it can get complex, if you begin to explore the, the ideas behind it. But actually, what is being said is, is very simple, really two things. If, if we were to take them all the world's great religious and spiritual traditions and distill them into a single sentence. It would read something like this, that the nature of our being is happiness and our being is shared with everyone and everything. That's it. That's all we need to know. If we understood this, if we felt this, and if we led a life that was consistent with this understanding, society would be transformed. And, and this understanding is well within everybody's capability. It's not necessary to read sophisticated books on philosophy. It's not necessary to subscribe to any religious or spiritual tradition. It's not necessary to go on. It, this is just a, a simple easy to understand, and the, the very nature of our own being is effortlessness, peace, joy. And what we essentially are is the same as what everyone and everything else essentially is. That's it. It's all that is necessary to understand and then to lead a life to the best of our ability in a way that is consistent with and, and an expression of this understanding.
0: I'm going to say last question, but I reserve the right to change that. You sometimes say, quote, and I'm not sure who it is, but you sometimes quote someone who says, love and do as you will. And I'm interested in your own experience because I know that getting to this, becoming settled in this understanding was a process for you over many years. I know you started when you were a teenager and you meditated and had various teachers and then you met Francis Lucille, who was kind of the the key that unlocked the, the kingdom, if you like. Francis, by the way, huge tennis fan, so you know credit to him for that. Indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and, and and I've heard you talk about what was the seminal moment when I think you spoke about there was a dog barking on the other side of a a valley in America, um, and you sort of thought, well, I know that that dog barking is over there, and I'm here, and he got you to. You, you can tell the story, yes. but you had this sort of moment of recognition. Yeah. So with that, okay, then once that happened, how has that affected the way you are in the world and continues to affect how you are in the world and your behaviors and everything like that?
3: Well, the first thing to say, Simon, is that I don't think one can ever say this understanding is completely integrated in my life and I have nothing left to refine. Having recognized the nature of our own being, having recognized that its nature is peace or happiness, and and having recognized that we share our being with everyone and everything, there is then an endless process of realigning the way we think and feel and subsequently act and relate with this understanding. And the quotation, love and do whatever you want, this was St. Augustine, who was asked a question about, um, about how one should live, how one should behave, what, what, is, what is one's ethical, moral duty, and, and to which he replied, love and do whatever you want, but by which he meant, recognize that you share your being with everyone and everything, and act in accordance with that understanding as long as that understanding informs our actions, we can't go wrong. And that's why he said, all you need to do is understand that you share your being with everyone and everything and just act in a way that is consistent with this understanding. You don't need a list of moral precepts. The list of moral precepts are just guidelines for those of us that don't yet realize for ourselves that we share our being with everyone and everything. And therefore, we need to be kept on the straight and narrow until we do realize it. So I would say that my mind and my subsequent activities, behavior, relationships, the way I think, are all being continually refined by this understanding. And I hope it goes on forever. I don't think one could ever say I'm, I'm done now. My, my the activity of my body and mind is a perfect expression of the, the recognition of the unity of reality. I think, at an embodied level, there are always little inconsistencies that go on and on and on being refined and become a, a better and better instrument of this understanding.
0: So, a bit like sports, it's not really it- about arriving. And getting the trophy. Yes. I mean,
3: any of the people that you spoke about, did they ever say, okay, I'm, I'm done now? I mean, is that what you see when you watch Federer and Djokovic? No, there's never a sense, okay, I'm perfect. I'm done. All they're interested in is just a little bit more, how would it be possible to go even further? How would it be possible to align my body even more deeply with this intelligence so that my body just expressed it that little bit better? That's why artists are always, nearly always, dissatisfied. Apart from moments, there's just a, the odd moment, brief respite uh, uh, of peace. But but then an artist is someone who's often dissatisfied. And, and their dissatisfied doesn't come from the, the sense of lack, necessarily. It comes from a sense of I can align my body and mind more intimately more closely with this uh, universal impersonal intelligence if we can call it that love and intelligence and and therefore the my paintings my music w- w- whatever it is could express even more accurately it could be more efficient at taking people to this intelligence and love
0: i'm going to exercise my right that i uh withheld earlier very quickly would you mind just sharing that story uh, with the dog barking with francis and then how you changed your view of things
3: it was um one of many such moments Uh, so i don't mean to imply that there was just one moment but there were many such moments this was one moment quite early on it must have been the late 90s when i was staying with francis in, in his and laura's home in northern california and there was a small group of people with him and he was speaking about, I don't remember what exactly he was saying, the, the, the nature of reality. And uh, I said to him, it, it it seems so obvious to me that uh, I'm here. I am located here in this body as this person sitting on this floor. And that the dog, there was a dog barking at the time on the other side of the valley. And that dog is, is at a considerable distance from myself. And not just at a distance from myself, but outside of consciousness. I considered consciousness then to be limited to my body. So consciousness then was something I thought it's located in my brain. It's this little sphere of consciousness in my brain. So from that point of view, it seemed that the the dog barking was outside consciousness. So he then, he just said, uh, um, put your hands on the floor. So I closed my eyes and I placed my hands on the floor, and he then asked me, where is that sensation? There was a new sensation generated by my hands on the floor. And he now said, where is that sensation taking place? Well, I should have said, to be consistent with my previous logic, I should have said it's taking place outside myself. I, consciousness, I'm located in the brain. And this sensation, not quite as far away from me as the barking dog, but nevertheless, it's taking place at a distance from myself, and above all, outside of myself, consciousness. But something about the the situation, my question, his answer, uh, something. About, I paused. I felt the sensation, just innocent, and I realised, no, the sensation is taking place inside consciousness. So my consciousness must somehow be larger than my head, because it incorporates this sensation. And then my attention was drawn again to the barking dog. And of course, I realized at the same time, without Francis having to explain it, that the sound of the dog was taking place within consciousness, not within my mind, located in my head, but that it was taking place inside consciousness. And then from there, it was like a it just started unraveling. I then opened my eyes and I thought, well, where is this perception taking place? The perception of the world, it's all taking place in consciousness. And then this was accompanied by a, a very visceral feeling of of expanding. I realized that what I essentially am is somehow larger than the world that I perceive. So there was this felt sense of being liberated from the confines of being located inside a head or inside a body. And I felt that the vastness of consciousness, in a way, the world became my body. Instead of just this little corner of the world called my body being where I was located, the entire world, I'm describing it to you, this all took place without thought. So it was more in terms of feeling, but I'm now elaborating it for you. But so there was this felt sense that, that, that I had somehow expanded, of course, I hadn't really expanded, all I had done was stopped believing that I was limited. But it seemed that I had expanded And that, that now that the world was my, my new body, and that all of this took place, not in a finite mind, I'm not suggesting this all took place in an individual mind, but it took place in a vast consciousness of which my own mind was just a narrow segment. So that was the, perhaps not the first, but probably the most powerful and complete. It's like it was my, my view of the world. It, it there were There was a hairline crack in it already. From my early teens, I had been exploring these matters. So I already had this deep intuition that the world was not what it appears to be. So in fact, there were a number of hairline cracks in my view of the world. But this, my view of the world, was shattered by this experience. I couldn't put it back together again along the old lines. It was accompanied by a great feeling of expansion and joy. But of course, it also uh, precipitated many more questions. So I then carried on questioning. And of course, the old habits of thinking and feeling came back. So then there was a process of uh, reintegrating my ordinary everyday experience with this new understanding.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Enjoyed that. Well, that is, I think, probably a good place to wrap it up. Yes. How has it been for you, Rupert?
3: Simon, I've loved every minute of it. You're a, a very, if I might say so, a very good interviewer, because I haven't felt for a moment that i was being interviewed it's like you know when when, when you came on i mean we're we're off the record now are we Uh, are we or perhaps we're not it doesn't matter
0: no no this is staying on the record
3: this is on the record. okay fine that doesn't matter it doesn't matter it's fine when we came on before you started recording we had a bit of a chat is the is the camera okay is the mic okay we would just you know check it and then you said okay you asked me a few more questions well i didn't really notice the formal interview starting it's just like this is all this is all the prelude it's like now i feel okay we've done our warm-up chat now when when, when are you going to start when, when are we going to have the formal interview? It's, it it's had that lovely um informal and i think that's i don't think it's a coincidence it, it it's a, a skill that you have as an interviewer it, it's very you ask very good questions very pertinent questions you give lots of space. You steer the conversation. You, you, you. So I, I've just felt I've been flowing. I've been in the zone. I've just been flowing. And it's only now that you ask me about well, it that, very I, that, 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 that I reflect on it and say I've done this and I've done that. But I had no sense of that. I just felt we were we were flowing together. If we'd been playing tennis, it would have been a very good game of tennis. <laughs>
0: Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I think first of all, that's very kind, and it means a lot. And I think this is the beautiful thing about doing podcasts like this, particularly with people like you, is that it is it is flow. It is. You know, I get to sit here. The amount of times I've sat here in this most uncomfortable seat, I'm going to get up. My back will be in all sorts of problems after this. But um, and I sit here and I think, you know, yes, there's. I'm not thinking about later or yesterday. I'm right here and there's nowhere else I'd rather be and I've certainly experienced that in this conversation so thank you very much listen yes, it's been a, yes. it's been a real joy so I want to say a huge thank you to you Rupert I want to say as well thank you to my to my listeners who because I know this is perhaps a little different to some of my other or all of my other podcasts so I appreciate you uh sticking with us and and I hope you enjoyed it and I'm sure some of you no doubt will have got a hell of a lot from it if you didn't don't worry that's all I'd say. But thank you very much indeed, Rupert. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on. So,
3: thank you, Simon. Thank you for asking me. Um, it's been a pleasure um, talking with you. I think what you're what you're doing is wonderful, and um so I wish you the very best as you as you go forward with it. And, and thank you for having the courage to uh, bring this. Uh, as you said, I think early on, it's an unusual perspective. It's not a mainstream perspective. But but thank you for for having the courage to open the conversation in the mainstream and not to open it in a kind of abstract philosophical way, but to relate it to our actual experience, in in particular in relation to sport. And we talked a little bit about art, but um, that's really, it's a beautiful intention. And and I think what you're doing is is wonderful. So uh, thank you very much for inviting me to be part of it.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode with Rupert Spira. I thoroughly enjoy talking to him and I would love to hear what you think of what is a challenging subject. Do message me at Simon Mundy on social media. My website is simonmundy.com. Also out today is my episode with Helen Richardson-Walsh, the Olympic gold medal winner. And we're talking about having a vision for how we want to be in the world. Anyway, that is it for now. Thank you again for listening. I really do appreciate it. And I will be back next Monday for another episode of Don't Tell Me The Score. I hope you'll join me then.